Hello, and welcome to Joe's Boys. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Vanity Fair and the New York Times. And I'm here today with my very special guest. I mean, I'll go ahead and say my esteemed guest, my eminent guest, Sarah Shulman. Sarah is a writer, activist, and AIDS historian. She's written dozens of books, plays, and films. And most recently, her 2021 history of ACT UP New York, Let the Record Show, won the Lambda Literary Award for LGBTQ nonfiction and was named a New York Times Notable Book of 2021. She was an active member of ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, between 1987 and 1992. And in 1992, she co-founded the Lesbian Avengers, a direct action group that founded the first Dyke March. She's been named a Guggenheim Fellow in Playwriting and a Fulbright Fellow in Judaic Studies. She's also on the advisory board of Jewish Voice for Peace, and she's an endowed chair in creative writing at Northwestern, where she is a distinguished professor. Frankly, this is just scratching the surface. We could spend multiple episodes talking about your life and your work, Sarah. But for now, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you. Glad to be here. I first met Sarah at the 2016 Lambda Literary Retreat, where I was a fellow in young adult literature, and she was teaching the nonfiction workshop. I was 22 years old and still figuring out that I was a trans man. I spent a lot of that week crying in the bathroom, (laughs) which is to say I was a tiny little mess. And I'm sure you don't remember me, Sarah, but I remember you during the faculty reading, you read from the manuscript of Conflict is Not Abuse. And I remember being immediately struck even by the title alone, by how necessary that book was going to be and how critical in the queer community, even my little corner of it. So it's really lovely to be talking to you now all these years later more settled, more myself with the benefit of having read your work and grown from it. So again, thank you for being here. Thank you. And and that Lambda Emerging Writers program is amazing. So many people have come through that. I highly recommend for people who are in and feel like they're in in an emerging phase. Yeah, 100%. It totally allowed me to grow. When this episode airs, I think applications were just closed for the next writer's retreat, but you should keep an eye on them if you're an aspiring LGBTQ writer and try to go because it's wonderful. So Sarah, what is your relationship to Little Women? Let's get into it. Very little. I mean, I read it as a kid. It did not make a big impression on me. The two things I remember are one sister burning the other sister's manuscript and later that Joe married an older man. Yes. that's that's all I really remember of the whole thing. So revisiting this chapter was kind of like, whoa, okay. So did you did you reread the whole book for this or just the one chapter? Just the chapter. Right. And it's it kind of opens up with gale force heteronormativity. <laughs> it's very, very pointed. It's very off-putting. I mean, I have to say I kind of hated it. <laughs> it kind of reminded me about why I didn't like the book or I didn't connect to it. Right. Yeah. Not because of what it's about. I mean, what it's about is Meg is getting married and her husband's not rich. And there's a whole discussion about how you run a household and how many servants you should have and all that kind of stuff. And then there's all these different sort of men who are courting different sisters and there's a whole protective element. And it's all kind of like hideous in terms of the values that it represents. You know, Joe is the resistor. But what really bothers me about this, and I did read a biography. I think it's called Marmy and Me or something like that. Marmy and Louisa, I think. Marmy and Louisa. And it was fascinating. (laughs) And it talked about their connection to abolitionists and all this radical stuff. 
And what bothered me about reading this is how Louisa May Alcott pandered so much when she wrote this. There is some subtext, but given what her real life was like and what she really knew, it kind of, it triggered me to authors who pander in order to reach the market when they actually know what's real. And I found that even more annoying, to be honest. Yeah, we were, I was just recording an episode with Kim Tran about the last chapter, which is the one where Meg accepts the proposal and she initially rejects the proposal. And there's a lot of language about courage and independence and Meg coming into her power. And that (laughs) there is none of that present (laughs) in this chapter. I can see why you were frustrated. When I was rereading the chapter to record this episode, I was like, I'm having Sarah Shulman on to read the most heteronormative, boring chapter. Well, you know, then there's the question of like, why do things become classics? Yes. Yeah. You know, and it's true that we do read for subtext. Okay. I mean, I was thinking about Vito Russo's The Celluloid Closet. Yeah, yeah. And how he said that, you know, even if the gay person in the film is a monster and is murdered, it tells the gay queer audience member that they're not alone, that there's a subtext for crumbs, right? So my generation I was born in 1958. And what was available to us, there were some very cool books mm-hmm. like Harriet the Spy. Of course, The Diary of Anne Frank is a radicalizing text for a young girl because it tells you you can be a writer. But this book, you have to really stretch to see the subtext. Yeah. I mean, there is a resistant subtext, <laughs> but it's like, why was this shoved down everybody's throat, this book, you know? Yeah. The subtext is not always so buried. There are places where it's right up at the surface. Later on, in just a few chapters, we'll get to Joe refusing Lori's proposal, which many people see as a, as a queer moment. And there's stuff in this chapter about just the contrast between Joe and Meg and Joe's total lack of desire to get married. But This certainly is a place where marriage and domesticity and housework really come to the fore. Boy, do they ever. And I'll ask you to recap in a second. But first, I need to ask, do you have a relationship to a March sister? Do you have a sense of which March sister you are? Well, I mean, you know, Joe, because (laughs) of my age, right? So (laughs) the idea that girls could be writers was, was something that was buried in a few books that we read, but was not something that was expressed as a possible life path. Yeah, here Joe is already making her living as a writer. Like this is mm-hmm. this is how she's working outside the home. So Sarah, I mean, would you like to just give us a quick recap of the events of this chapter? Not a ton happens, but maybe maybe more the themes that are being pushed here, it's useful to think about. Well, the mo- I think it's more about the mother is trying to give advice. Yes. And the advice is all very containing. And even though... She's saying, oh, you're better off not being super rich because if you had too many servants, you and your husband wouldn't have any privacy. So it's okay to just have a few servants or just one, you know, and it's okay, fine. And then there's the spread eagle. That's fun. Yeah. <laughs> the newspaper that Joe is is writing for. Mm-hmm. And Lori's hanging around. He's handsome, handsome, handsome. We tell they were we're told that over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Beth is shy. So Meg is getting ready for this incredibly boring, soul-killing life. And Lori comes with this present for them, which is basically a whistle that you blow if you're going to be attacked, right? That's what kind of what it is. 
It's a thing where if somebody breaks into the house or if something bad happens, you can make a really big noise, like a siren-y type of noise. Yeah. And supposedly the neighbors are going to come and rescue you. That says a lot there. If Meg is at home, she has this watchman's rattle to make a ton of noise. She can't protect herself. That's... But it's interesting that they're they're assuming that something bad could happen. Yeah. Because it's a very bucolic setting for their lives. And we don't have a sense of home invasion and potential threat. So it's like a weird protection against a threat that isn't actually there. Mm -hmm. And there's one point where she she says, I never cry unless for some real affliction. (laughs) And Lori says, oh, so just fellows going to college? In other words, he thinks that fellows going to college is a real affliction because they're leaving you. But the real affliction is that she can't go to college. And that would be the reason that she would cry, in my view. Yeah. And there's this interesting thing about growing your hair. Yes. I do object to being seen with a person who looks like a young prize fighter, observed Joe severely. (laughs) So there's a class thing about having short hair, I guess. And if you have long hair, it means that you're more upper class. Yeah, I I don't know quite how to read that. It's Joe says that the, she said it's the fashion to be hideous to make your head look like a scrubbing brush. So Lori's shorter hair is it's it's stylish. She thinks he looks like a prize fighter. I actually read that as like she likes the more feminine, long, curly hair that Lori's had. Well, that he's going for a a working class masculinity look. True. Yeah, this unassuming style he says promotes study. It has to be rough trade or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> and then there's this thing where. She characterizes a wedding as something that breaks up a family. Yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting. And then they say, Joe, you're going to be the next one to get married. But uh uh-uh, ain't going to happen. That's what Joe says. Joe says, no way. And Lori says, you won't give anyone a chance to marry you. Even if Lori is saying, you're the next one, he's saying, you won't show the soft side of your character. And if a fellow gets a look at it by accident, you can't help showing that he likes it. You treat him as Mrs. Gummidge did her sweetheart, throw cold water over him and get so thorny no one dares touch or look at you. So he's simultaneously saying, you'll be the next to get married. And also, you'll never let anyone marry you. Yeah. Very weird. He's criticizing her, but he's also (laughs) conflating her rejection of him with her rejection of everybody. Because in the end, she does find someone to get married to. I guess she She has to. Yeah. And a benign older man, yeah. Yeah, the rejection of Lori has not yet happened. It's almost like Lori is sort of foreclosing that here. It's it's an interesting, he's sort of guarding his heart, but also expressing a hope that maybe she she does like him romantically after all. So as you said, I think this is a chapter where the pandering really comes out full force. And we can talk about why that's the case. We know that Alcott had been destitute for most of her life. You've read Marmy and Louisa, so you probably know a lot of this history, but Alcott was working outside the home as a teenager, going out to service. Writing was always an economic thing for her. And I think The Unexpected Little Women was the first true success as far as like, oh, you can subsist on this. You can support your family on this. And Given how the abject poverty they'd lived into up at that point, I think I can see why Alcott felt so much pressure to ensure that the next volume would reach as wide an audience as possible, which is maybe why this this chapter begins like a Bible reading. It's so pious and just it, it's off-putting. I, I agree with you. It's it's frustrating to read, especially coming off the, I think, the much more radical chapter we just read where Joe is allowed to really present in full force her objections to marriage. And Meg is able to 
enter into a betrothal with John Brooke in a in a way that really preserves her own agency and her power. That's not here. Like here we're we're talking about how, oh, you don't need servants. You'll be so bored. You'll have nothing to do if the servants are doing all the housework for you. It's, well, uh, it's interesting in light of, I don't know if you saw this yesterday, but Pamela Paul had a column in the New York Times about censorship. About censorship. <laughs> and, you know, she's the right-wing former editor of the New York Times Book Review, right, who's been writing these right-wing in many ways and also anti-trans columns yeah. in the Times. And, you know, that she's part of these people who are claiming that publishing in America has always been neutral. <laughs> And now it is the terrible, terrible people who are doing critiques who are actually censoring everything. This is her argument. But looking at Little Women, you can see that from the beginning, American literature has been highly censored. And that work that has replicated certain kinds of Christian values, that that has been confused with quality. Yeah, absolutely. I- My question is... Did it, was, was there any rebellion against Louisa May Alcott? Did anybody write against what she was doing? So actually, yes. The first half when it debuted was banned from Sunday school libraries by the Christian Union. And that at the time was a major bookmark, like a major buyer's market. There's a letter at the Houghton Library at Harvard where her editor is writing to Alcott and kind of enumerating the objections of the Christian Union, which are mostly to the Christmas play that the girls put on where... There's talk like someone is playing a witch. There's talk of murder and suicide, witchcraft. And Joe notably is cross-dressing and playing a romantic interest to some of the girls in the play. And the Christian Union said, no, no, no. And the editor writes to Alcott and says, is there anything you could replace the Christmas play with? It was never replaced. That never happened. I think Alcott put her foot down there. But you can see (laughs) in the outset of this chapter she knows her market, right? She knows that the, the girls that have been writing to her have expressed that they want to see marriage. They want to know who the little women end up with. And so she writes, if any of the elders think there's too much lovering in the story, and I fear they may, I'm not afraid the young folks will make that objection. Like she knows her audience. She knows they want romance and unfortunately straight romance. Like this is what they want. This is what the market wants. And I think for Alcott, there were lengths she wouldn't go to like she said, I, I won't marry Joe DeLore to please anyone, but we can see her really acquiescing and saying, okay, maybe I can't afford to lose an enormous market like the Sunday School Library again. Okay, so she had, there was a fascist critique. There was, yes. But was there a critique from the other side? From a progressivist critique saying that it was too- Yeah, from a utopian socialists or any of those communities that she was on the fringes of. Well, she was very much at the center of the utopian socialism. Her father actually ran a utopian socialist commune very briefly. <laughs> was There was more idealism than planning that went into it. It was the kind of thing where they said, okay, we're going to establish this commune with no meat, no animal products of any kind, no animal labor. We're not even going to wear animal-based fabrics. We're not going to wear cotton because we're, we oppose the slave trade. So we're all going to wear burlap sacks and not use horses to plow the fields by winter, it was like, we will die <laughs> if we keep this up any longer. Okay, but those kinds of people, did any of them say, this is bullshit? What are you doing here? This is crap. I have not found such a critique among her contemporaries. I know that Alcott was just very well respected by people like Emerson and Thoreau. Nathaniel Hawthorne was sort of a dick about it, but he was not utopian socialist so much. Like They, they had conflicts about slavery and abolitionism, Alcott and Hawthorne did. It wasn't really until the first wave of the feminist movement that little women began to be really seriously critiqued as 
something that was a problem for feminists and something that was holding up domesticity and child rearing. And that interpretation of Little Women has kind of since been troubled and questioned. But the first wave feminist critique was very, very much, this is a regressive text. This is upholding domesticity. This is prioritizing marriage above all. And I mean, that is that critique is still present in as far as Joe very much does end this book married. <laughs> who did that? Who in the first wave? I mean, first who were the feminists? Critic, critic. I don't know if I have names for you. I'm pulling kind of my my understanding of the feminist history of responding to little women from a book called Meg, Joe, Beth, Amy by Anne Boyd Rue. And she has a chapter kind of summarizing the history of feminist responses to little women. So let me just pull up here my notes on that book. See if she, if she names any specific sources. <laughs> okay. So Sarah Eckle, she quotes Sarah Eckle is calling little women, a feminist story, even Newt Gingrich could love. <laughs> so that's one specific critique in that regard. That's late. That's quite late. Yeah. yeah I mean, cause looking at it from my point of view, you know, for me, this was a regressive controlling yeah. text that mm-hmm. offered nothing of the kind of life that I wanted to have. I mean, yeah. I had a book as a kid about growing up to be an airline stewardess, which was my first wish for my future. Yeah. And that was much better than Little Women, right? <laughs> because you got to fly all over the world. And in those days, air travel was very fancy. And yeah. So anyway, t- I found it very something I rejected. Yeah, I can absolutely see that. And I think it's part, we've talked about this. I think part of the reason Little Women has been in, adapted and reinterpreted so often is that nobody likes the ending, whether you're a feminist or a fashion, it just doesn't, it doesn't fit either mark. And, you know, to the point where in the most recent film adaptation by Greta Gerwig, we step outside of the story and show Joe, the author, sitting in her editor's office and saying, no, she doesn't marry anyone. She becomes a writer. And, <laughs> and the editor kind of holding her at gunpoint and saying, she has to marry someone or die. And then we get this rose-tinted glasses, you know. But is that accurate? So honestly, I have heard about there being editorial pressure. I've read the entire editor side correspondence with Alcott through the composition of Little Women. I couldn't find anything along the lines of Joe has to get married. But what Alcott talks about a lot is pressure from readers, a ton of pressure from readers to say, who are the Little Women going to marry? Will Joe and Lori wind up together? And essentially what she did, what she writes about saying is, I won't marry Joe Joe to Lori to please anyone. I've devised a funny match. I expect heaps of wrath to be poured on my head, but I rather enjoy the prospect. So in a way, she was genuinely, I haven't found like a letter from the editor saying she must be married, but I have found Alcott saying, my readers expect Joe to be married. And they want her to marry Lori, and I don't want that. So I'm going to troll them. I'm going to make up a weird match for her. And I can't wait to get the hate mail. Like, bring it on. That was very much that. Well, it's interesting, this idea that if you're a writer, you can't get married. Either you're going to get married or be a writer. Yeah. She said Joe should have remained a literary spinster. Joe should have followed the path that Alcott ultimately took, which was to remain unmarried, to write books. But I thought Alcott was in a three-way relationship, wasn't she? I think you're thinking of some. you might be thinking of Margaret Fuller. (laughs) Yeah. Alcott never had romantic relationships. These relationships where she was very affectionate with young men, but almost in a way that some scholars read as identification rather than romantic attachment. She also had a tendency, John Madison pointed this out to me when I spoke with him for the New York Times article. She had a tendency to attach herself to unavailable or dying men. 
there was a soldier she was very enamored of who she was looking after during the war who was dying and and she was just fixated on him. And when she was abroad, she met this young Polish man named Ladislaw Wisniewski, who was one of the inspirations for Lori. He went by Laddie and he was dying of consumption. So she had this habit of fixating on unavailable men, men who were about to die, where there was something kind of tragic baked in. Laddie, she writes that she did actually kiss him, but she also scratched out the page about Laddie in her journal so extensively that the page was actually defaced and wrote, couldn't be in the margin. So there's stuff we don't know. We know that she was attracted to women. She talked about having fallen in love in her life with ever so many pretty girls, but there's no evidence she ever actually had a romantic or sexual relationship with a woman. You know, there's places in her stories for adults where she's explicitly exploring bisexuality, male homosexuality, cross-dressing. And she did cross-dress at parties and for pranks and take a lot of joy in that and for plays. Absolutely. But no, she never really had serious, intimate, romantic relationships. Okay, interesting. Well, the advantages of an older man are many. Yes, yeah. Less pressure to have children, mm-hmm. less sexual pressure. Yeah. He's not building a career, less competition. I mean, there's all that, you know, it's better than marrying somebody who wants to control you. Yeah, absolutely. And when we get to the proposal, we'll see that Joe is like, listen, if we're going to get married, I have to be able to write, you can't try to get me to stop working. Like she's very clear about that. In some adaptations, the the first one, which was directed by George Cooker, and which I actually think is the only one that really makes that relationship appealing because he's he was an openly gay man and he sort of casts Professor Bear and Joe as this older and younger person. And he's taking her out to see the opera and get all this culture. And there is something of the traditional older man and younger gay man new to the community that I read in that. But anyway, in in that early movie, in that in the Cooker movie, and then in the 1949 version, which had a very similar script, Professor Bear is instrumental in getting Joe's book published. Mm-hmm. Like he shows up like, good news, I reached out to a publisher and they'll be publishing your book. And it's in that like moment of gratitude that Joe throws herself into his arms. <laughs> it's very, it's... But what's the truth? How did she get her book published? So actually, Alcott published her first book at 17. It was a book of poems that she'd written for Emerson's daughter, poems and short stories. So Alcott was, they were never wealthy, but they were very well connected in this circle. It says a lot. The first book was something that she'd written as a gift for Emerson's daughter and that found publication, no doubt through Emerson himself. But Alcott had, she had written short stories, both pseudonymously and not for several years before Little Women came out. She'd written a book called Hospital Sketches, which was a fictionalization of her time in a civil war hospital for soldiers of color. And that had gotten a lot of shine that had been published as a book. And it was sort of coming off of that, that a publisher reached out and asked her to write a girl's story. And she didn't want to do it. She initially told him no. (laughs) And she said, I never liked girls or knew many except my sisters. But when he asked again, she did say yes. And it seems that this was in part because there was some promise of a publishing contract in it for her father if she accepted. Because her father was struggled with mental illness and was not always, and was certainly not well off or able to hold a job. So the fact that she was in the position of power there and was doing this to get a contract for her dad, I think says, speaks volumes. Mm -hmm. So it was never like a man was intervening. Alcott was a really good business person above all else. And have you read the father's book? Did that book get published? I haven't read any of Bronson's own writing. 
he published books and he enjoyed a certain amount of fame actually in the wake of Little Women as the real life Mr. March, right? But I haven't read it. Contemporary reviews say that his writing was incredibly tedious. <laughs> and I, I have no reason to doubt that. Anyway, and then so Joe in this book is also depicted as going to the offices of the Spread Eagle herself, getting her stories published herself, initially not taking good money for the stories. She says, all right, for exposure, I'll do whatever. <laughs> but now she's getting a dollar a story. She's making money. She will publish a novel over the course of this book that actually flops. And she kind of learns from its lack of success, which again is a parallel with Alcott, who had written a novel for adults that was not received well before Little Women. So we can talk all day about the differences and the similarities between Joe and Alcott, but I see Alcott kind of preserving Joe's independence as much as possible while also appeasing the young readers who wanted a love story and marriage at the end of this thing. Very much that. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, we can talk subtext because it's hard to overstate just how much marriage and housekeeping talk there is in this chapter. Like it's overwhelming. We linger on the linen closet and the china, this and that. And this is called Joe's Boys. So we can talk about how Joe behaves and relates to Meg's new life in this chapter. What's interesting, there's talk about Lori bringing friends home from college and how Amy is very popular with them. She's already, you know, kind of growing into her sexuality and getting a lot of delight from flirting. And Alcott writes, Joe felt quite in her element among Lori's friends from college and found it very difficult to refrain from imitating the gentlemanly attitudes, phrases, and feats, which seemed more natural to her than the decorums prescribed for young ladies. And then this is pure fantasy. I love it. They all liked Joe immensely, these boys did, but never fell in love with her. So it's this fantasy of Joe just getting assimilated into this group of boys and none of them have a crush up. They all just accept her as one of their own. Did you pick up on that at all throughout this? Well, I mean, the, the thing is that what was acceptable for women is so tiny. Yeah. You know, that it's not hard to to defy it or to violate it or because mm. women are constantly being policed and constantly being controlled. Yeah. It's interesting. I just read this book by Anna Zavovsky about anti-gay policing, the history of anti-gay oh. policing. And it's interesting that you can't just take the way men are controlled. And apply to women and then try to evaluate the comparative because women are controlled in so many ways that men are not controlled. It's a completely different frame. Yeah. So for Joe to just be, try to be, to have intellectual repartee is already outside of her prescribed. Yeah. And to be accepted among these men as a friend and an equal and a fellow, they clearly see Amy as like a potential partner or someone to flirt with, but they don't see Joe. And that reads to me as throughout this book, there are places where Joe says, I can't get over my disappointment in not being a boy, where Bess says, you'll just have to content yourself with playing brother to us girls, where Mr. March says, you know, my son, Joe. Lori repeatedly says, he calls Joe my good fellow. There is so sort of an understanding of Joe as kind of being male or having an identification with manhood, wanting to be a man. And she wishes that she could go to college. She wants to be part of the life there. And Alcott just emphasizes that. He says, when the boys come home from college, they all love being friends with Joe and, and they think Joe is the best and they don't, they don't like her romantically, but they sure do love spending time, time with yeah, her. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm just, the point I'm trying to make is that I don't think it's, there's so little room that it's so easy to become a male in this environment. Yeah. Because there's so much constraint. That's a very good point. I'm trying to get 
<laughs> as far as just speaking to like the amount of constraint on Joe, when Lori arrives, she asks him about the college sports and says, which side won the last match? Teddy fired Joe, who persisted in feeling an interest in manly sports despite her 19 years. It's out of line for her to be interested in sports or to ask how yeah. the match went at college. <laughs> it's out of line for her to be interested. Yeah. yeah. In feel- she persisted in feeling an interest in manly sports. And that's, that's narration. That's deviant. It's like, despite the fact that she's old enough to know better than to be into sports, she wants to know how the, how the game went. And, you know, as you were saying, she cried when Lori went off to college and Lori's like, oh, because you missed me so much. And, and you say, no, it's because she wanted to go to college too, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like that Isaac Singer story, Yentl the Yeshiva Boy. It, it, yes, it is. <laughs> you know, Yentl wants to study so badly that she yeah. becomes a male in order to study. And then all these things ensue. Yeah. In the first half of the book, we're told kind of very blank and you'll miss it. We're told that the war is over. It's over. It's done. <laughs> we won't be getting into the circumstances of the war or the abolitionist cause in this book, but trust the war is over. In the first half of the book, we hear a lot about Joe wanting to be a soldier and go fight in the war. And as she's a miserable girl, she can't. And she looks at these all-male environments like hospitals and camps with this wide-eyed idealism. That's a world she wants to be part of. And now it's college. And that- <laughs> Lori going off to college and Joe not being able to is it's a great affliction to her. It made her cry, right? So I don't know. It's it's upsetting in many ways because we know that Joe is as much as Joe is trying to resist, she's being kind of slowly marched toward marriage. As we hear in the in the kind of the closing words of this chapter, Lori says, Mark my words, Joe, you'll go next, which seems like a threat. <laughs> it shouldn't be, but it it sounds well, like in a way, it's the only way she can continue to be a woman. Yeah. Yeah. She doesn't get married to somebody. She's going to be this person with no social role. Yeah. No agency. Uh-huh. She's going to be a freak. Yeah. And, and so she needs that normativity. Yeah. It's interesting you say, like, she will have no social role. She does say there should be at least one old maid in every family. And that's not a joke as such, because this is a John Madison annotation. He says, it wasn't unusual in the 19th century for one daughter in a large family to forego marriage in order to look after her parents in their old age. He says that's often given as one of the reasons why Alcott didn't marry. There was kind of a social function for a daughter to not marry and to look after the parents. So there is a role for Joe as such, but I think it might have been unusual for that role to be chosen so willingly as Joe does. Well, because also that's not what her strategy is, right? Yeah. She's delaying marriage so that she could be an intellectual and an artist. Yeah, that's exactly right. In Alcott's real life, she wound up doing both. Part of the reason she worked so hard was to provide for her mother who never had nice things her whole life, but also having this intellectual artistic life and traveling abroad and being part of this community of writers. But that's, yeah, you're right. And that, that's not anything. I mean, like- even today, you know, even in 2023, when you're my age, 64, mm-hmm. and you're smart woman, people are like, you're so smart. <laughs> it's so shocking, you know. And when men my age are considered that they've done something or they're smart, nobody is surprised. Right. Because they're supposed to be. So this persists into this moment that there's something scary, affrontive, freakish, 
And what's sad about Louisa May Alcott is that she uses all of her gifts to produce something that subtextually has radicalism, but on the surface is very reactionary. Yeah, absolutely. That's the constant tension at the heart of Little Women. I think it's something that I and and others are trying to excavate. We're trying to bring that subtext up to the surface. They actually, this book is much more queer than you would have believed. You didn't find much to relate to, it sounds like, as a child reading this, but I've heard from other people that they did kind of relate to Joe as a proto-lesbian or a young transmasculine person. Is there any, do you think, why do you think? I I think, well, I think a couple of things. First of all, the Christianity of the whole thing is alienating to me. Uh The New Englandy thing. I mean, I hear it because I'm like a New York Jew. I'm born 13 years after the end of the Holocaust, right? Mid-century. And this is so foreign to me. I have no exposure to this world. Yeah. The ways they talk to each other are so buttoned up. You know, I'm from a very dysfunctional family where people screamed and were mean and all of that. And this way of people talking to each other is unknown to me. Yeah. You know, this very formal thing and the compliance is unknown. So everything about it was unknown and it wasn't appealing. (laughs) Whereas Harriet the spy working, walking around with her notebook, writing down the truth of what everybody said. Then they read it and they read the truth about themselves and then they hate her. You know, that (laughs) was very familiar. And that was the threat of being a writer, that if you wrote the truth, you could get punished. But this, I didn't connect. And even with Anne Frank, which, of course, in my generation, every young girl read the diary of Anne Frank. It was mandatory, partially because children were not shielded from history in the same way, right? Uh But I think that the consequence was that my generation were all diary writers because of the diary of Anne Frank. Yeah. So- Every girl I knew had a diary and, you know, wrote, I mean, so it was this freedom to be a writer. And here it's like being a writer is not, even though it's an an urtext because it's written by a woman, but being a writer within the story is so dangerous, wrong. (laughs) Your sister burns your manuscript. You can't have a life if you want to be a writer. So The message of the characters is contrary to the reality of the author. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in this chapter, we're told Joe is selling stories for a dollar each to the Spread Eagle, which is very fun. But then there's a pile of manuscripts, you know, that she keeps stowed away in the tin kitchen, her attic writing spot that she's not showing anyone, that she's afraid to show other people, right? It's It would be rupturing. And, you know, I, I think in this chapter, maybe more than anywhere else in the book, Christianity that's pushing against Joe's ambition. And Joe is kind of being made to walk through this period of wedding planning with Meg and told, you're next, even though she has zero desire for that, right? And unfortunately, I don't know if you'll remember this from your childhood reading, but like there are actually places where the book veers into just full-on anti-Semitism. It's, it's not super pronounced, but Amy goes abroad and meets people and talks about seeing weak Jews. I think there's literally, and I apologize for even repeating this, there's a reference to a long-nosed Rothschild. It oh, yeah. dumps out. Yeah. And it's really, it's upsetting to read in 2023, right? And it's interesting because, okay, that is a stereotype, the big nose, but it's also a reality. So there's that, you know, something that's actual becomes seen as an insult. Yeah. Yeah. 
is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And also because they're not, you know, they're, they're Protestant and pre-gentrification New York, where I grew up, white Protestants were very rare. I mean, black people were Protestant. Most white people were Irish, you know, Italian or Jewish, right? So that's also like another strange, unappealing thing. (laughs) Yeah. Really like the racial and ethnic and class politics in the book, it sounds kind of alienated you so much that maybe Joe didn't resonate for you as like a transgressive figure as much as other readers might have, which is very interesting. I've, I hear different responses from people. My friend Claudia Morales was on once and said she hadn't read the book until I asked her to for the podcast because she was an immigrant from Honduras and she just never saw anything in the book that seemed to resonate with her experience. And then Hannah Collin, who is this Pakistani-American children's author, said that she loved it and related to it as a child because the family was so polite and the children were so polite to their parents. And that resonated with her way more disrespectful kids in modern children's literature. Right? Oh, interesting. So, no, to me, it just felt unreal. Maybe. Yeah, I certainly see that. I'm wondering, do you see the subtext in it here? Do you see any, we've talked about Joe's masculinity. Do you see any femininity in Lori in this moment? Do you see Lori transgressing gender at all? Well, he lets her be in charge of the relationship. Yes. So that's, you know, an unusual male representation. I mean, just another thought that I had was that I was reading this in the 1960s. Yeah. So it's a period of total social change. And But when you're 10 years old, you don't know that it's a period of social change. You think that's the way it is. Mm-hmm. So maybe there was something that felt anachronistic about all of this. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Distance of history, it widens, but also the interpretations differ. We were talking about that first wave feminist interpretation, which saw this as a wholly regressive feminist story that Newt Gingrich could love, right? And then by the 90s, it kind of rehabilitated in a film, I say, I literally say rehabilitated in a film starring Winona Ryder and Susan Sarandon, where Susan Sarandon as Marmee looks right into the camera and says, corsets are bad. You know, it's being the feminist subtext and the radical subtext is being kind of pulled out. And then more recently, Greta Gerwig is literally rupturing the ending of the book and saying, actually, no, Joe doesn't really marry him. We're going to show this being an editorial compromise. And we're having in this podcast, we're having a conversation about Joe being trans. There have been several books that interpret Joe as a lesbian. People are pulling that text out now, but I can see why even in the 1960s, the conversation about the subtext was really not being had yet. And I don't know how this book was presented to you, but it was given to me as an example of a good, pious Christian book. (laughs) You know, I don't know how I got the book. That's a good question. But I will say that my reading was not controlled by anybody. Okay. We had a school library. We had a local library. And also, this is pre-helicopter parents. (laughs) So I just roamed around the city at will and did whatever I wanted and went in anywhere and did anything I wanted and read whatever I wanted in any <laughs> library. They used to give us subway passes starting in first grade. So you could just do whatever you wanted and your parents worked and that was normal. Mm-hmm. So I don't think anyone gave it to me. I must have heard about it or something. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's always been a popular text. Initially, it was a very popular text for girls and boys alike. And it's kind of since become more for like, this is a girl's book. <laughs> you will read this if you are a girl. So. so Nancy Drew was more queer because there was that butch femme couple, George and Bess. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think Carolyn Keene is a fake name, right? It was a bunch of different writers. Uh, it was several people writing on one name. 
Yeah. But I was more interested in Nancy Drew, I think. Yeah. I can see that. I can see. She had more adventures and more autonomy. Yeah. Yeah. Little Women, for again, as for as much as there is that subtext, it very much revolves around the home and homemaking and marriage and family relationships. It's interesting that Laurie is sort of parachuting in from college here. And college, it's presented as a cosmopolitan influence on him. We hear a lot about Laurie's fashion and his elaborate new clothes and the fancy colors and and how he's become dandified. And I know enough to know that being a dandy didn't necessarily mean being queer, but it's interesting, this fixation on male adornment and Laurie's delight in fashion and style, the latest hair and having 17 new waistcoats when he comes home. And that's something that Joe objects to. (laughs) Right. He's a hipster. Yeah. That he's... What college does he go to? It's not ever mentioned outright, but it would have been Harvard. He's off in Boston. Yeah. His grandfather being a member of the Boston Brahmins, Laurie would have been going to Harvard. He couldn't have gone to graduate school at Harvard because he was of Italian descent but he could go to undergrad and he is going to undergrad here. So they didn't allow, oh, you had to be American born? Or you, you, couldn't, you couldn't be Italian. <laughs> so is he Catholic? So Lori, in the very, very earlier in the first half, we learned that Lori's father was disinherited from marrying an Italian woman. And that Lori has been raised in Italy for most of his life, but his parents have died. And now he's been returned to America to live with his, to live with the grandfather who didn't approve of his father's marriage to an Italian woman. And Laurie is, he is an outsider. Joe describes him as having dark brown skin and curly black hair and that being novel. Basically for, for this period of the 19th century, he is sort of, a, he is an ethnic other to the March sisters, right? And being half Italian, he wouldn't have been able to enroll in the professions or any of the professional schools at Harvard, but he could go to undergrad. And if he married a white woman, like the March sisters, then his prospects in business and in social class would would have improved. So now what do they have against Italians? At this point, this was really anti-Italian sentiment would ramp up in the years that followed as Italian immigration from Southern Italy and Sicily sort of ramped up. And then we got all these ethnic stereotypes about Italians, like, oh, they're coming here, they're having 17 children, they're dirty and they bring disease. It's really just anti-Italian racism. It's anti-Catholic is really what it is, right? It's anti-Catholicism, but it also very much is anti-Italian racism to the point where in the early film adaptations of Little Women, Lori, brown-skinned, curly-black-haired Lori is just presented as a blue-eyed blonde because anti-Italian racism of that period is so pronounced. Mm -hmm. But here, Lori seems to be getting on fine at college. He's really delighting in the cosmopolitan life and spending and being a bit of a peacock. And and that's interesting to me, I think, because it's a way for us to explore the class contrast between Joe and Lori. Up till now, we know that Lori is the boy next door and he's wealthy, but it, it's never been like he has so, so many more beautiful things than Joe or that he's able to get the latest haircut and Joe can't, right? So that's an interesting, it's it's a bit of a, a new dynamic coming into their relationship. I, I wonder if you have any any thoughts about the gender or the class dimensions of that. You know, it's interesting that you raised this because I've never thought about that. Yeah. I mean, I do know that the reason we have a public school system in this country is because the Protestant majority wanted to control the Catholic immigrants. And the original public school system was very much modeled on Protestant church, you know. Yeah. And then the Catholic schools were started as a kind of rebellion against that. 
So I, this whole level of what you've just shared with me was completely unknown to me, but it fits in perfectly with, with that dynamic. Yeah. And it's, it's one that's sort of overlooked, I think, in adaptations. And I can understand why, like, it's really, we sort of establish this as Lori's backstory and then move right along. But I think it colors the book in more unexpected ways than we think. So, I, I mean, I don't want to keep you here too long, but Sarah, do you have any kind of final impressions or thoughts on this chapter? Well, unfortunately, it made me dislike this book even more to revisit it. And I feel like through my own subjective lens as an author, it's just what you have to do to have the apparatus behind you in American publishing is go against what you really know about yourself about the world and try to put it into subtext. And she did it so well that, and even though there is a subtext, it is still propaganda for the other side and overwhelmingly. And it's, it's, yeah, um, it's too bad because I really enjoyed the book about her and her mother. And my partner is a a slavery scholar, Mm -hmm. historian of us slavery. So to see the abolitionist relationship was absolutely fascinating, you know, and I just wish it had gone more in that direction. Yeah. I mean, there's there's very little. We've talked about this extensively. There's just almost no discussion of race in Little Women. At the very end of the book, when Joe opens her school, she admits a multiracial Black student. And that's explicitly discussed, but that's the full extent of it, which is, again, too bad because Alcott had led this really outspoken abolitionist life. The Alcotts were at one point, one of their homes was a stop on the Underground Railroad. None of that makes it in here. So yeah, I mean, the first half of this book, I think is more radical than the second half. As we get into the second half, I regret to report listeners, it's kind of going to be bummer after bummer, (laughs) but (laughs) we'll pull what we can out of it. And again, I'm very grateful, Sarah, that you stopped by to help us do that today. Thank you. It was fun. It was so so much fun. It was a lovely discussion. Before we go, where would you like people to buy your books? How can they find you online and support you? I mean, I'm very accessible. So, you know, I'm on Facebook, whatever. I'm very easy to find or Northwestern. You can email me if there's anything that you want to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And again, Sarah's most recent book is her history of ACT UP New York, and that is I was looking at conflict is not abuse because I have that right here, but it's Let the Record Show, which is her latest history, which won the Lambda Literary Award. And I love conflict is not abuse. I was speaking about that earlier, and I I would recommend picking up that one as well. Indie bookstores always over Amazon. (laughs) But again, as always, I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. You can find me online at peytonthomas.ca. You can buy my book, Both Sides Now, wherever fine books are sold. And you can also find us now on Instagram. We are at Joe's Boys Pod. You can follow us there for news, updates, sneak previews of forthcoming episodes, hot pictures of Catherine Hepburn, all the important basics. So thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week. 